0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 4. Um, as you're turning there, I have a question for us this morning. Um, I, I, I ran into a bit of a discussion the other night at my regroup. We did a, a guy's night. We went out to a restaurant. Um, how many of you, when you go out to eat, you have like your, your faithful, tried and true. You order kind of the same thing everywhere you go. You stick with what you know you like. Let's confess, be honest. Okay, so lift your hands higher if you're more adventurous. And you're like, no, I want to try something new. I want to try, So I'm going to steal a story from Greg a little bit. He and his wife went out for Valentine's and they tried squash steak which is like squash pretending to be awesome steak. Like, that's just wrong on all the levels. Um, but I am not, so I have reached, you guys can decide uh, for yourself and then tell me afterwards. I have decided, I have, I have reached either like awesome status or I'm, I'm a bit of a loser. Like, um, my favorite restaurant in town is Tilted Barrel and I have reached the pinnacle of when I walk in, they know what I'm going to order. They don't bring me a menu. Uh, the waitress sees me and she's like, oh, you're getting the jalapeno popper, no bun on the lettuce wrap with a side salad and ranch, no croutons and a glass of water. And I'm like, yes, I, I, am, I don't have to talk to you. This is great. Like you just know what I want and bring it to me. This is like a fantasy come to life. It's fantastic. Um, so you can decide if that's sad or awesome for yourself and feel free to let me know. Um, but I've officially reached that, and uh, Thursday night as we were out w- at dinner, they, it kind of got into this discussion over, like, should we try new things and be adventurous, or do we stick with what we know we like? And there were some guys who were like, no, you've got to try something new. What if you're missing out on something awesome? And I'm like, but I know what I get is awesome. Why would I veer from it? Um, as we start a new series today in Hebrews chapter four, uh, this morning we're going to look at, uh, as the author kind of shifts gears a little bit, we've been looking at Jesus as the better Moses, the better prophet, um, that Jesus came to bring God's word, to reveal God's word to his creation. We, we hit this transition where the author is pleading with his audience to stick with what you know is true. So you're not wrong if you're adventurous in like what you order at a restaurant. I just wanna be like Jesus. I stick with what is tried and true. Um, so we are going to uh, be jumping into Hebrews 4, verse 14, um, but really the anthem verse kind of for this series that we're calling Soul Anchors. We wanna examine what is our soul Clinging to comes from Hebrews chapter six, verses 19 and 20 says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll, we'll spend a whole week talking about who Melchizedek is. So that's just kind of a, a teaser for now. Um, but what we wanna ask ourselves over these next six or seven weeks is, what is my soul anchored to? We live in a world full of distractions. We live in a world full of lies that want us to chase after many different things. And as our author shifts his focus here, it he says, you need to think about Jesus. Consider Jesus, stay steadfast and anchored to Jesus, because he is what is tried and true. And so this morning, I want us to look at three aspects of who Christ is that is on display in our passage. And so let's dive in Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse 14. It says, "'Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession.'" to Christ, I want us to look at three aspects. The first one I want us to look at um, out of this verse is I want us to see the character of Jesus that is on display in these first few verses. That, um, and when I, when I say character, what I mean is character is what makes you, you. It's what makes you unique. It's what makes you special. When we think about the character of Jesus, it's what makes Jesus who he is. It's what makes him and him alone worthy of our worship. And so let's look at some of the aspects of Jesus's character that are on display here. First, we're told that he's a high priest who has passed through the heavens. This works both ways that Jesus Jesus left heaven to come to earth. He passed through the heavens and was born of a virgin, grew up in a family, worked a job, spent three years traveling around, doing ministry, training up future leaders, was eventually betrayed, crucified, he was, he was buried, and then he walked out, he conquered sin, he conquered death, he walked out of the grave, the tomb is empty, and then at the end of Jesus's life, as he's commissioning his disciples, he's telling them to go and be his witnesses, to make disciples, to wait on the power of the Holy Spirit, what do we see happen? He ascends back into the heavens and where did our book start? What did, our book, uh, what did the book of Hebrews start out saying that Jesus, after making purification for sin, is what? He has passed through the heavens and he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is coming back to get us, that eventually this, all the pain, all the suffering, it's all going to be over. Revelation 19 has this picture of Jesus coming back, passing through the heavens again to get his family. And so as we think and consider and want to be anchored to the character of who Jesus is, I want us to see first and foremost that part of Jesus' character is that he pursues us. He comes after us. The God who upholds the universe by the word of his power came after you and is coming back to get us one day. He passes through the heavens. We have a God who pursues us. That's part of his character. That's part of his nature. Secondly, though, we see that he's not, he's the son of God. We should hold fast to that. Our confession, we'll come back to that in a second. But he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Part of the character of Christ, what makes Jesus who he is, is he understands and can sympathize with the fact that you and I are woefully inadequate. Let me me put it a different way. God gets you. The God of the universe understands you. He passed through the heavens to come and live a life so that he could better sympathize with who we are, with our struggles, with our hurts, with our pains. God understands you. This is what makes Jesus unique. This is what makes him who he is, that he would come to understand, to sympathize with who we are. But there's more. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's not just that Jesus understands our weakness, but where we are weak, Jesus is supremely strong. That Jesus is woefully adequate where you and I are woefully inadequate. That Jesus is strong, that Jesus succeeds where you and I sin and fall short. I love here that it says that he has been tempted as we are in every respect, yet he was without sin. We're gonna get to Jesus's prayer life here in just a few short verses. But this, this just kind of hit me this week. Like if you're familiar with the gospels with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, oftentimes in Jesus's life and ministry, we see him retreat to go get alone with the father and pray. We see him wake up early. We see him leave crowds. We see him dedicate and make time to go be with God. And if I had brought up here this morning my prayer journal and opened up and started reading and, and, and sharing some of my prayer life with you guys this morning, you know what's in a lot of my prayers? A lot of my prayer life feels focused around time in confession, time in repentance, and then time in worship and prayer and praise and thankfulness out of the forgiveness that is afforded to me at the cross. But I spend a lot of time going, man, I missed the mark again, Jesus man, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your shed blood because man, I don't measure up. And it hit me this week as I thought about this verse that he was tempted as we are yet without sin. It's crazy. In all those times that we see Jesus retreat to go be alone with God, you know what he's not doing? He's not confessing sin. He's not repenting. He's not praising the Father for the forgiveness that he has been given because where you and I have fallen short, Jesus is victorious. He didn't need to spend time in confession. He doesn't need to spend time in repentance. He doesn't have to spend time thanking God for forgiveness because he never missed the mark. It's part of who he is. He is perfect. Not only does he come after us, not only does he seek to understand us and sympathize with us, but where we fall short, Jesus is victorious. It's his character. It's who he is. It's what makes Jesus worthy of our worship. And this results then in verse 16, the author spurs us on. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. This would have been unbelievably powerful to our original audience. As again, their temptation, we've seen this throughout the opening section in our book, um, that their temptation is to go back to the law, go back to the Levitical system, to trust in what they used to believe, what they used to practice, to go back to comfort and, and security in the old way of doing things. And in the Old Testament system, there was one day where the high priest would enter in to the Holy of Holies and they would literally tie a rope around his leg because if he entered into God's presence with sin still present in his life, he would literally be struck down. And they wanted to be able to get the body out of the Holy of Holies if necessary. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound a whole lot like approaching God with confidence, drawing near to him if you're having to tiptoe and hoping it's not like your final few moments because of the awe and power and majesty of who God is. But in Christ and in who he is that he left heaven to come to earth, to rescue us, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we should have died. We now are told, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. I'm thinking about it this, I've been thinking about it this way this week. When I get home from a long day at work or I've been gone for a little while and I, I, th- my kids hear the garage door open, um, my, my three younger kids are still young enough um, that they run to the door and are excited that dad is home. My 15 year old, he doesn't do that as much anymore. Um, I don't know why. Truthfully, it'd be a little creepy if he did. Um, but, but my little ones come running to the door and they fling open the door, and they're so excited. They want to jump up and give me a hug and tell me a story and beg for a snack and, and, and ask me to tickle them and snuggle with them or, or whatever. They're just excited that I'm home. Do you know what my kids don't do? They don't come tiptoeing to the door. They go, um, Father, I beseech upon thee a moment of thine presence. Like, they're just, I'm their dad. They're glad I'm home. They just want to be with me. That's what the author's calling us to to just draw near to our Father. And what we see about Jesus's character here is that he rules and reigns on a throne of what? Grace. Part of who Jesus is, it's not just that he's powerful, not just that he's perfect, not just that he came after us, that he pursued us, but that he rules and is gracious. That he understands you're broken and I'm messed up. That you're messed up, and I'm broken. And he says, that's okay. My throne, my kingdom is one of grace. I want to pour, I know you don't measure up and I came after you anyway. I want to give you what you don't deserve. My love, my presence, my power, my spirit. I want to pour out on you grace. I'm gonna withhold what you do deserve. That's mercy. I want that, that he rules and reigns as a gracious king and ruler. It's who he is. And as we pursue and want to be anchored to Christ, we need to understand that who Jesus is matters a great deal. We need to be anchored to his character, which is tried and true. But the story doesn't stop there. We continue on in chapter 5, verse 1 as our author is going to highlight now, something that would have been very familiar to the original audience, but I think it's super helpful for us as he kind of describes the priestly system that they are living and falling back into. In chapter five, verse one, he says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Let's pause there. Is What our author just put on display is what he just talked about, was this system And he's saying that the high priests that they were very familiar with, they didn't fill out a job application. They didn't post their resume on LinkedIn. They were called, they were appointed. They were chosen by God to fulfill this role that God used imperfect people to stand in the gap as mediators, to take, if a prophet brings God's word to God's people, the priests were tasked, they were charged, they were called to bring God's people into God's presence. And so they had to do something with sin. But we see here that there's a problem with this system in that the the men that are called, the men that are chosen, the high priests that were appointed by God had the same problem as the people. And so we need another solution. These men are called to be mediators but they're having to offer sacrifices for their sin. He even says that um, they can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. I don't think our author here is being disrespectful. There was this practice of, again, they wanted to so ensure that they were thinking through all of their sin because they recognized that sin is deeply offensive to God, that they literally would go through and confess and repent and sacrifice for everything they could think of. And then kind of at the end, they would say, just in case we missed anything, here's one more sacrifice to cover any anything we're ignorant about anything we didn't see that we didn't do or that we should have done that we didn't do and so the purpose of the priests the calling of the priests the setting setting them apart choosing them putting them in this place where they relate they bring god's people into god's presence is to point forward they were not the answer they were preparing the way for the answer which is where we get to verse 5 it says so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I love that our author, he kind of quotes the Bible like I often find myself having to. I think it says somewhere, love your neighbor as yourself. I don't remember. It says in some other place, you are a priest forever. Um, After the order of Melchizedek, he's like, I I know it says this somewhere, um, but Jesus was called. Jesus was appointed. Jesus was chosen to be the great high priest. God establishes this system. He sets people in place to pave the way so that when Jesus shows up to fulfill what the father has willed for him, we get to know and respond and stay anchored to him. Jesus was called, he was appointed to rescue sinners like you and like me. Again, let me let me maybe put it a little bit different way. Part of Jesus's purpose was to rescue you from darkness and into light. If character is what makes you you, I think your calling is what puts that Into action. It's how you take who God has wired you to be and put that into practice in your life. So Jesus takes who he is, and then his calling is to come to earth, to live for us, to to be an example, to die in our place, to rescue you from the wages of sin, which is death. It's his purpose, it's his calling. So if I can ask a question for just a moment as we consider how we can hold fast to the calling of Christ, that he was appointed to be this great high priest, to be the mediator between us and God. If God has rescued you, what has he called you into? What has he, how has he wired you, gifted you, given you passion and design so that you can run and live a life on purpose for purpose. God rescued you out of darkness and into light. And he's got a plan. He wants to use you. And I would go so far as to say, if you call redemption home, not only does God want to use you wherever you live, work, shop, eat, play, but God wants to use you here for the glory of his name and the beauty of his bride. God has a plan God wants to use you. He has called you to do something. You know, for those of you who are a little bit newer, we we wrapped up last year kind of sending out our planting pastor, Matt, and his family. Uh, We sent them to Denver to plant more churches, and um, they're getting ready to close on a house. Things are going well. Like, we're excited for what God is doing there. Uh, But one of the things that Matt really loved was these personality profile tests, the disc test, the... Uh, the, the million, strength finders, five voices. I mean, I've taken a million of them. Um, and they all basically say the same things in just different ways and cost you 50 bucks. Um, but originally I was a little hesitant. It's like, man, another test. Because like he would discover one and he'd come back and be like, we got to take this test. It might tell us another way that, Nate, you're weird. Um, and we want to know about that. Um, and so, but over time, there was such comfort in understanding who I am, who God has made me to be, and what God has called me to do. There's so much freedom to understand. Um, I'm going to throw Jeff under the bus here. Actually, I'm going to praise Jeff um, in just a mocking way. Um, Jeff is awesome. He loves people so well. If you are suffering and going through a hard time, like Jeff is your man. Like he will sit with you, he will listen, he will care. I love people better because I do life alongside Jeff Dillon. He cares so, so deeply. I am not Jeff. Like if you come and wanna sit in my office and cry and tell me how hard your life is, I'm gonna listen for a little bit. And then at a certain point, I'm gonna say, I love you but just do better. I don't know. Like, be different. Stop. Like, I don't know what to tell. Like, read your Bible and stop being a sinner. I don't know. Like, that's all I got. I can't do it. It's not how... I'm wired. Matt, when Matt was here, Matt's the best day Matt Brown could possibly have. And some of you who are extroverts, this might, this might feel like, man, that would be a great day. If Matt could have like three morning coffees, three lunches, and then like two or three afternoon coffees and just people, 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 people all day long, man, he would be like a cat on catnip at the end of the day. That's who he is. That's what he loves. It was energizing for him. Like just saying that sentence makes me want to go take a nap. Like I'm not wired that way. And so I don't have to stress as I start to understand, God, you have equipped me. You have called me. You have appointed for me a different road than you have for a Jeff or a Matt. And the beautiful thing is then if we all start to understand how we're gifted, how we're wired and what we're called to do, we come together and it's beautiful. You get the guy who's gonna love you and the guy who's gonna tell you to knock it off. And we need both. We really do probably a little bit more Jeff than me, but that's okay. We need all of us coming together, using who God has created us to be. And if I can press on this for just a little bit more, church family, like it's been a hard last 12, 13 months. And for some of us, we have pulled back. We have stepped back out of right and real concerns out of love for others, out of concern for self and safety, there has been a, let's step back and see what happens with our world, with our culture, with all the health stuff. Like, and and, and that's, it's been tough. And I'm so proud of how our church has weathered this last year. But as I sat and thought about the faithfulness of Christ to, to walk the road that God appointed for him, that God called him to. And we're gonna see that it's not an easy road here in a moment. For some of us this morning, maybe, maybe your question isn't, God, what have you called me to do? Maybe the question you need to ask yourself is, how am I doing in my calling? Am I doing what God has asked me to do? What God rescued me out of darkness and into light? How am I serving? How am I caring? How am I loving? Because it's been, it's been a hard year. And if I can just, again, lay it on maybe real thick for a moment. Just two, two quick examples that, for me, here at our church, like we, we, need, we need people to re, re-engage, um, Our our Redemption Kids Ministry uh, leadership team—they are eager and they have a plan, and they want to reopen toddlers. But earlier this week, we were in a meeting, and the the conversation went kind of like this: "We want to do it. We're excited to do it. We think we know how we're going to do it. We just don't have the people." Man, that breaks my heart. That's the future generation. Our team wants to go there, but we need God's people who are called to love and serve for the glory of God's name and the beauty of his bride to step back in and trust that God is good and that he's moving and that there's things that he wants to do in our city through our church. And so some of us need to roll up our sleeves and get back in the game. And then Wednesday night, our student ministry is, as Chad and I are kind of tag teaming and, and I'm handing things off to him, man, we have students out I'm just everywhere here on Wednesday night. Like it was awesome. There's 30 something students and snow was falling like crazy. It was, it was chaos and awesome. And I loved every minute of it. But after we were all done and the students were gone and Chad and I were kind of locking up, he was talking about like invite cards and how do we get our students, our middle schoolers and high schoolers to start thinking missionally and inviting their friends and bringing people from their campuses. And I was like, like I, I hate that this was my first thought. I said, bro, that's awesome. We don't have the right leadership in place right now to love on the students we have. Like we're running around on Wednesday nights, just crazy trying to connect with the students that are here, let alone start bringing their friends. Like, that breaks my heart. Like, we need God's people who are called appointed to be witnesses, to put Jesus on display, to take the fact that you have been rescued, that Jesus came and he was faithful to his calling. We need to be faithful to our calling. And so I want to ask, like, how has God wired you? How has God designed you? How has God equipped you? What has he given you a passion for? And then how are you using that for the glory of his name and the beauty of his bride? And if you've been through membership, if you call redemption home, if this is your church family, like part of our covenant is that you will be involved here. And I know it's been scary. I know it's been hard. And for those of you who have been faithfully serving, and I'm looking around this room and I see a lot, like, I just want to say like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We could not do it without you. It has been a trying season, and God has been so good and so faithful. But this morning, I want us to look at how Jesus walked, how Jesus was faithful to his calling, and I want that to spur us on in what God has called us to do. Because what we see then, lastly, is that not only do we need to be anchored to his character, not only do we need to be anchored to his calling, but we need to be anchored to the fact that Jesus is fully competent. And when we say competency, that could be a little weird to talk about in relationship to Jesus. That just simply means he was able to complete the task that God had for him. And we see this in verse 7 through 10. It says, in the days of his flesh, so going back, he's going to now draw an experience out of Jesus's earthly ministry. It says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. And then look at how Jesus prays for just a second. I love the passion. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Here's what our author does. He goes back to a story. He's familiar with Jesus and the time in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is drawing his final few moments. His life is coming to an end and he recognizes that he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And in a moment of his humanity on full display, Jesus cries out to the father and he says, man, if there's any other way, I'd really love to not have to suffer and die, but not my will, but yours. If this cup could pass, that would be awesome, but, but God, whatever you want. And I read a commentary this week that said that what, when he, what the author is doing here is that, that Jesus is heard because of his reverence. And what God does in those moments in the garden is he doesn't pull him out of the hard situation and say, okay, let's go put you over here in a rose garden where everything's fine but rather he comes and he says, I'm gonna equip you, I'm going to empower you to fulfill the task I have for you. It's a hard road, and I'm gonna make sure you complete, that you are competent to finish the work that you started. And so we see Jesus then revealed as the competent only source of salvation, which is where our passage closes in verses eight and nine, or eight through 10 rather. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he'd suffered and being made perfect or rather re- being revealed as perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek that Jesus comes and his character is put on display that his calling is is revealed and he fulfills what God has for him and then we get to respond to that by being anchored to the only source of salvation if you are anchored to your job you'll be disappointed if you're anchored to your marriage great as it may be it, it's going to be disappointing. If you're anchored to your family, if you're anchored to your friends, if you're anchored to your job, if you're anchored to this church, if you're anchored to anything but Jesus, you you are not clinging to, you are not holding fast, you are not drawing near to the only source that can save. Everything else will disappoint. Everything else will discourage. Everything else will leave your soul longing for more. Our souls must be anchored to Jesus. He came to call us out of darkness and into light. He came to rescue us so that we could hold fast to him. And when we see Jesus for who he is, when we see Jesus for for what he did, when we understand his calling and his purpose and that he fully did what he came to do, all of a sudden now walking in obedience isn't a duty. It's a delight. We get to draw near to the throne of grace. We don't have to. We get to. And so you'll see there on the bottom of your note sheet, I've got a few questions that I want to encourage you to spend some time this week sitting with. As we want, we want to strive to have our souls anchored to Christ. And my hope and my prayer is that these questions would either serve you in your regroup, our small groups, your journey group, or maybe with your spouse, or just maybe in your time with the Lord. Um, and so a few questions that I would encourage you to just take time and sit with or talk with somebody this week. Um, it says, Jesus passed through the heavens. What do you think that was like? I think sometimes we can just be way too boring of grown-ups, and we don't let our imagination run wild. We are children of the king. Like he wants us to dream. He wants us to explore. He wants us to imagine. And that's coming from the guy who doesn't order new things ever. Um, And so I want you to spend some time thinking about what was it like for Jesus to pass through the heavens? Let your imagination run a little wild. What, What do you think the angels were like when the king of kings came home? Like, I don't know how that doesn't like just spur on worship and prayer and thankfulness in your heart, but just spend time anchoring your soul to the fact that Jesus is the king. He left heaven to come to earth. He's going to do it again. Um, secondly, Jesus was tempted and yet remained without sin. How does that impact your life? The fact that every place along the way where you have fallen short, Jesus was victorious. What does that mean to you? It could be a great question to journal and pray through, um, to think and spend time on. Thirdly, how can you draw near to the throne of grace this week? We're going to have an opportunity here in a moment to partake of communion together. And it's a, a fantastic way to draw near to the throne of grace. But what does it look like for you on Monday to draw near? Or Tuesday? Or Wednesday? How do you stay anchored to Jesus and his calling on your life, maybe some of you need to ask the question, what is my calling? What has God equipped me and given me passion for? Um, And I'm just going to put him, since he's standing in the back right now, I'm going to put him on display. If you've got a question about like, man, how has God designed me? How has God wired me? What is God calling me to do? Um, Greg would welcome that conversation. He, like, I think one of God's callings for Greg, if I can have a wonderful plan for Greg's life, um, is to help people understand how they're wired and what they're supposed to do for the Lord. Um, And so, Like, I I always joke, email Jeff. Like, actually, email Greg. Like, I think he would enter and has some great resources and tools to help you figure that out. But um, if you know who you are, you know what you're supposed to do, man, how can you stay true to that and not get distracted? And then finally, where can you better trust in Jesus and walk in obedience? Um, a, A growing thing that I'm passionate about right now is just, man, how can we as a church be taking small steps towards faithful obedience? So what does it look like for you to take one small step this week to be more anchored, to be more obedient, to be more true to who God is and what he has for you? And so I'm going to invite the, the praise team to come, come back up. Uh, we're going to transition into a time of communion where we have the opportunity to draw near to the throne of grace to remember Christ's broken body, his shed blood, that he was, he was called, he was appointed to come and rescue us. And we get to do that now together.